do this thing and if it if it gets fucked up we'll redo it Sakura, welcome to NYC 2050. Thank you so much for being our first guest. We're honored to have you on. Hey, thanks, Tom, for having me on. Uh, glad the audio is working now. And, you know, I wish the climate change problem was the same as like an audio recording where you could just say, well, fuck it, let's redo it. Uh, but that doesn't work on the climate crisis. We get one shot. Because this is our first episode, I'm going to just like do, you know, give a, a one minute rundown of the vision here. I know you're familiar, but the idea for NYC 2050 is basically to create a space for conversations about the future of New York City under climate crisis uh, that's somewhere between the kind of real-time hurly-burly of Twitter and the like futuristic and and too often maybe dystopian um, you know visions of like you know climate fiction um, and obviously the the name for the podcast is not to Kim Stanley Robinson's 2140 uh, but you know as we see big landmark pieces of climate legislation very often with 2050 as kind of a target year for certain uh, benchmarks, uh, you know, I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about what's going to happen in these crucial next 30 years in New York City and in New York State. Um, so again, just thrilled to have you on. I think you're the perfect person to speak to that. Before we start looking at the future or talking policy, could you just give us a, a little bit about your background and what your path into climate work was? Uh, sure. I um, I grew up here in New York City in Washington Heights, and uh, I needed a job uh, for the summer when I went off to college and got uh, one of those door-to-door canvassing jobs where you're raising money for an environmental group. And it was fantastic uh, for me. Uh, it's a tough job, but I got I kind of caught the activist bug in that job. Um, and since then, I went to work on after I graduated. I you know, did a ton of volunteer work as an activist in college uh, and then worked for NYPIRG for seven years. And then I worked for uh, for the Communications Workers of America, a large labor union for 10 years. Um, and now I uh, work with New York Communities for Change. So I've spent a little over, I think, 20 years now, maybe it's 25. I don't know. I get to my age, you start to lose count. But um a lot of years as a as a movement activist, um, and so that's uh, that, that's how I got into this. Um, I realized reading Bill McKibben's stuff um, and thinking about climate change that it was a particularly intractable problem that required um, a lot more work and a lot of smart policy and movement activism to, to deal with um, linked to fighting inequality. So that, that's why I wanted to go into this. Brilliant. Um, just for people who aren't familiar, uh, could you explain briefly what NYPIRG is? Um, it's an environmental consumer and good government group based on college campuses. Um, and so I worked there for years. Um, they do door-to-door canvassing to raise money. And that's how I got my start there uh, in, uh, in that kind of a, a summer job. 
could you give a you know a kind of brief rundown of the last I mean brief but ten or twenty years of, of those climate battles in New York City, um, you know, culminating with a couple of these big wins that have come in the last couple of years. Sure. Um, I mean, the the thing here is New York City is a gigantic uh, polluter. Um, the, the pollution load coming from New York City is larger than you know most countries. Um, it's also the world's most important city. So things that happen here matter uh, a lot, both by the size of the economy and the, uh, the reverberations of what happens in the media capital of the world, the financial capital of the world. Um, the world's largest city level uh, economy, pretty much. Um, so uh, New York City uh, is a city full of old uh, buildings. 70% of the climate pollution coming from the city is generated from energy use in buildings. Um, US-wide, that's about 40%. Um, so in most cities, uh, the dominant form of, uh, of pollution is coming from energy use in buildings. So that is the number one problem in New York City. And um, it's paired to um, in- inequality in New York City, where the top 1% in New York City is people who make like over 600000 per year. That top 1% takes about 40% of the income generated in New York City. So it's a stratospherically unfair city, segregated by race, segregated by class, that is incredibly vulnerable to the climate crisis, um, which we saw most dramatically in uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit. So um, it's a humongous problem and inextricably linked to inequality in, in our view. Um, I'd say the city made very little progress on this issue and continues to be, you know, well behind where it needs to be. Um, But a couple crucial victories have happened in the last uh, few years. Number one, uh, the city uh, is divesting its enormous pension fund, which is worth about $200 billion. The city's pulling that pension fund out of oil, gas, and coal, um, which created uh, a wave uh, and a real bang for the divestment movement globally uh, when the city uh, committed to do that. Um, So that's one big victory that reverberates across financial markets. The second victory uh, is um, important here locally because it takes on that largest source of pollution, buildings. New York City passed um, Local Law 97, um, which the mayor has labeled as its Green New Deal law. And he's not not off because what the law requires is uh, for large buildings to slash their climate pollution, um, which creates enormous numbers of good jobs in energy efficiency, in design, renovation, and construction, in raising the energy efficiency of large buildings. And the result of that is will be a large decrease over time in uh, pollution coming from large buildings and tens of thousands of jobs being created uh, this decade uh, to do that work. So those are two enormous things. They're not enough, but they're a very big start. Um, I wish more cities were were as far advanced in putting the policies into place, but those are two biggies. Can you speak a little to what it was like doing that organizing, maybe who some, some of uh, your partners were and what it took to get those wins? Because I know that 
you know, a lot of people are celebrating New York City's Green New Deal today, but it was comparatively few of you who are really out there leading over the course of, you know, five plus years to get those victories won. You know, when I um, started as a canvasser, you know, I kind of thought of myself as politically pretty knowledgeable. I, I read the newspaper, things like that. Um, what I realized was that you can make enormous amounts of change through pressing for public policy uh, changes. Um, oftentimes, we all think of individual actions as the way to make change. And of course, that's important. But if you really want to move the needle, particularly on um, big, big, intractable social problems, um, public policies are needed. And so um, that's what really got me into um, activism was I see it as a way to be able to make the kind of change that's needed in society that will make people's lives better. And in New York City, um, that's true just as it is anywhere else. Um, here, um, large special interests rule the roost and you have to be able to assemble a campaign strong enough to overcome um, those big, powerful interests. Um, and in the case of the buildings legislation, that means overcoming the real estate industry, which is an incredibly powerful lobby. So to do that, you have to assemble a strong grassroots force that can combine with an idea that can um, pass and that can be enacted and then enforced in law. So we did that. Um, and the way that we did it was working in a multiracial coalition um, to put pressure on key elected officials. And in a blue city, in a blue state, the election that really matters is the primary election. So what we try to do is put together a combination of our base that is New York Communities for Change's base in communities of color, black and Latino communities, and combine that on climate with the predominantly white progressives who are already active on the issue. Those two forces combined into an effective campaign can really move the needle in a blue city and in a blue state. And so that's what we did um, to move the system towards passage of local law in 97. Very similar campaign around um, diversity. But overall, this takes really hard charging, well run, well executed campaigns um, to press specific elected officials for transformational results. That's that's what we're in the business of. But segueing from um, you know what you were just uh, speaking about, what, what do you see? In, in an ideal scenario, what where would New York be in 2050? You know, we're, we're much more about um, the immediate future, um, but looking long range here, um, the city has an enormous crisis of inequality. Um, and so we uh, want uh, a, a Green New Deal type approach in New York City, where um, the, to solve the climate crisis, the city also um, mobilizes in a manner that addresses inequalities. So um, we want to create good jobs, particularly for low-income communities of color, um, to fight the climate crisis. So that's why we're so excited about Local Law 97, because it does just that. 
it will create a wave of hiring um, in construction and renovation to raise the energy efficiency of large buildings, thereby uh, cutting their climate pollution. Um, and that kind of an approach can be applied on issue after issue after issue at the city level to think through how do you solve particular problems to benefit particular communities to help right society's wrongs. Um, so by 2050, um, we would like to see a city that is um, remade through a Green New Deal. Um, that, by the way, will not, it won't be enough to have city uh, policy put into place, state and federal policy changes as well as actions by large corporations will be necessary. So um, we run campaigns at all of those levels, the city level, the state level, the federal level and targeting individual corporations. So um, that's our vision is a, is a better society that addresses inequalities um, and fights the climate crisis. You've already spoken to this a little, but what do you see as the key barriers both in the near term and in that, you know, kind of mid or longer term time horizon to accomplishing these big goals that, that you've said and you're a part of at a movement level? The, the key problem here is getting enough people involved into multiracial organizing and movement building. Um, it's It really is true that the number of people coming out to rallies, signing petitions, lobbying their legislators, pushing the mayor, that that determines results. Um, so our challenge is to mobilize um, a large enough base um, that the politicians feel the pressure needed to make specific changes. Um, that's that's the that's the big challenge. It's an organizing challenge, and it's very hard. That said, it doesn't require millions of people in the streets. It doesn't even require tens of thousands of people in the streets. You can make pretty big changes in New York City by mobilizing hundreds of people or thousands of people into an effective campaign. And so that's what we did, both on divestment and on um, the city's new Green New Deal law, local law 97. Um, th those were campaigns involving thousands of people. So um, it's both very difficult to do, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. And so um, more organizers, more effective campaigns, more movement building, more people spending a little bit of their time um, standing up for what's right. That's what we need. So uh, I know you emphasize that your focus is really on the, the near term um, and, as it should be as an organizer. Um, coincidentally, we're literally speaking a few hours after uh, the inaugurations of, uh, you know, President Biden, Vice President Harris. Um, obviously, you know, in New York City, we're coming up on, uh, you know, elections later this year where 35 of 51 of the city council seats are, uh, you know, going to be in play. There's talk that there might be a credible primary challenge to Governor Cuomo, even though obviously, you know, that maybe feels like a bit of a longer shot at this point. Um, you know, looking at all these these kind of bigger political shifts, given that you do work at both a city, a state, and a federal level, um, you know, are, are there are there key strategy, uh, you know, questions or opportunities that you're thinking about, um, you know, or again, kind of key challenges that you're trying to strategize around at the moment? Um, you know, this is a, a, a multi-layered problem where um, we got to win elections and we got to win 
policy campaigns, and they feed off of each other. Um, so we've uh, joined with the Sunrise Movement in New York City and Food and Water Action um, to create a Green New Deal for New York City campaign pledge. Um, and so we're, we're pressing candidates at the city council and, and citywide level um, to sign on to that pledge as a way to show the kinds of policies that they're willing to adopt. Um, and that's a that's a vehicle for raising these issues in city elections. Um, NYCC is also engaged in particular races where we endorse particular candidates. We interview and then make decisions on endorsements. Um, and so that's another way to engage in elections. You talked about Andrew Cuomo. Um, state level policy is holding us back. And Cuomo is the big obstacle there because he fronts for big, deep pocketed special interests like Wall Street and the real estate industry. So what we want to do is um, build a big enough movement to force him off those positions. Um, and if not, then um, and get the get the results we need. And if we can't do that, then recruit and run a candidate that can defeat him in a primary. Um, and like you said, that's a big challenge. Um, these are very, very difficult things to pull off. But um, we do think that that it's uh, it's possible and it's certainly worth trying. What do we do in the next decade or so to make sure that the victories on paper turn into you know victories and uh, you know in reality? Yeah, yeah. No, it's really it's a great question. Um, you know, Andrew Cuomo, like you alluded to, was you know wants to put his stamp on everything to such an extent that he wants to rename bills so that they become clear that they're his bills. Um, so the CLCPA is an example of that. Um, and the, 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 what we have to do here is pass laws with enforceable deadlines that hit the objectives needed, which is a very fast cut in pollution plus job creation and a focus on benefits for communities of color and low-income communities. So passing laws that have frameworks that are enforceable is is extraordinarily important. And that applies both globally and on lots of individual specifics. You also need the money to make those laws uh, turn from something on paper into reality, as well as all the government programs and effective administration uh, to do all of that. Um, those are, you know, narrowly seen. Those are technical challenges, but they're not really technical challenges. The solutions are very, very clear. Um, maybe there's some various options, but fundamentally, it's obvious what needs to be done. The problem here is the politics and the special interests and the politicians holding this stuff back. So um, pushing them into mobilizing the kind of resources and governmental response that's needed takes a movement. Um, and it takes a multiracial movement to produce the results that's needed in, uh, in New York. So um, that's, that's the thing. Laws are good, very important need to be enforceable, have to have specifics, need the money, and need the, the administration to be done properly. None of that is going to happen without a larger movement growing and forcing elected officials uh, to do the right thing. So that's that's the key challenge. Yes, but I think part of the, the genius of NYCC has been, I mean, and again, sort of obvious, but it's focused on environmental justice and that, that idea of building multiracial coalitions. It root because what ends up defeating, uh, you know, struggles for climate or environmental justice so often is 
these kind of wedge strategies, right? Divide and conquer, distract people, um, get them infighting, and then in the meantime, those special interests, etc., like you've laid out, end up getting what they want out of the process. Um, as, as we're thinking about the transition into a Biden-Harris administration, are there anything, any, is there anything that you hope to see out of the federal government? I'm sure there's many things, but, uh, you know, in the next year or two that are especially relevant to New York City? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, we support a Green New Deal at the federal level, and that's um, a concept that's reasonably well articulated. With a 50-50 Senate, that's going to be very difficult to pass, um, even if the uh, the the Democrats have the the uh, the wherewithal to eliminate the filibuster, which they should. Um, there's a lot of stuff Biden can do on the executive side that matters, um, and there's a lot of relief measures that can incorporate funding for the climate fight that can also create good jobs. So there's lots and lots of specifics of what the federal government should do. But to name, uh, I think, a couple biggies, um, the federal government needs to come to the rescue of mass transit in New York State, the MTA in particular. Um, If the subways and buses collapse, um, that will uh, set us back um, permanently. Um, Number two, NYCHA and public housing around the state is in a terrible state of disrepair. And that's because of decades of federal disinvestment in housing affordability and public housing and social and supportive housing. So what uh, we'd like to see, I think, is action on a wide variety of issues, um, stopping fossil fuel infrastructure, providing funding for clean energy solutions, upgrading homes to high energy efficiency, building and supporting mass transit, building new energy efficient public housing, social supportive housing, upgrading existing housing. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, there, that's just kind of the, 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 a spray of various objectives, but what neat, again, just to make the point again, there's lots of technical solutions here. There's a lot of really smart people working on climate change. And I've noticed uh, climate change activists are often get very, very stuck on, you know, real narrow specifics of issues like should you should you, uh, you know, use nuclear energy or not? Um, is it uh, feasible to go to 100 percent renewable energy or is it not? Is offshore wind better or is onshore wind better? You know, what about solar? How about how exactly do you want to upgrade the energy grid? Those are all, you know, important technical questions, but it's very easy to get lost in the details of those kinds of things and lose sight of the broader picture, which is that unless the politicians feel up in their face, real hardcore pressure that they know is going to affect reelections, and that pressure is strong enough to overcome the campaign contributions, lobbying, and inertia that's in the system, we can't win. So we always see it as mobilizing the public into specific transformational type type campaigns um, to make the solution. I know I keep going round and round about it, but that really is what it comes down. Here's to that. Um, I promised I would circle back to talk about kind of next steps for NYCC. Um, any, you know, I, well, I know already, but are there any campaigns that you want to highlight or any kind of goals over the next year or two that are, are really front and center for you? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, we are 
at what feels like it could be uh, a shift in things with Trump slinking out of the White House this morning. That's a great development. It does feel like we've got a little bit of momentum now. Um, even as the crisis gets worse, things are starting to wake up a little bit. Um, speaking of Biden, um, his transition website has climate as the number two issue for him underneath coronavirus. Um, he's signaled in many other ways that he's going to make climate a priority, right? And that's all encouraging. Um, but the climate problem is so severe that making small progress, getting a quarter loaf, that's not good enough. Um, it won't matter really in the broader scheme of things. He's got to run the table. And so um, that's how we view federal, state, and local policy, as well as our corporate campaigns. We need transformational results. Um, we don't want incremental results to be celebrated as the be all end all. Um, we need to land the big punches. So here are some big punches that we are throwing um, and we want to connect on. Transforming Wall Street's relationship to the oil and gas industry. This decade, we want to chase away all major finance capital out of oil, gas, coal, deforestation, all of those things functionally defunded, starved of capital from Wall Street this decade. So the way we want to do that is by pressuring Wall Street's asset managers. BlackRock is the biggest. Wall Street's banks. JP Morgan Chase is the biggest bank for um, fossil fuels. Insurance companies and other financial actors to start divestment. So, you know, we're doing a lot of work pressuring those 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 entities in coalition with, you know, with other uh, other organizations. So that's the corporate campaigns. At the state level, we're pushing a Green New Deal type vision that means stopping all fossil fuel infrastructure, creating a schedule to shut it all down, moving to 100% renewable energy across the entire economy, winning public power and utilities, and taxing the rich to finance that kind of a equitable, just transition. We want to tax the rich at the state level to the tune of about $10 billion per year to fund all of those social items that are needed from mass transit to upgrading uh, public housing in order to make that transition uh, possible. So that's our state level agenda to get Andrew Cuomo to embrace what is actually a Green New Deal, the change at the scale that's needed. Um, at the local level, we want to take the next step in New York City government. And while local law 97 gears up and is enforced, um, the real estate industry, by the way, is trying to weaken it. So we're, we're fighting to defend that. Um, but at the same time, we got to move faster to cover more of the sources of pollution. So our next steps at the city level is to pass a ban on gas hookups in new construction and in major renovations for buildings of all sizes and to pass requirements on existing small and mid-sized buildings that will slash pollution, create good jobs, and do it in an equitable manner where no one is hit with extra costs that they can't afford. Um, we also want New York City 
to start to actively put into place um, a shutdown schedule of fossil fuel infrastructure that it can control, um, large scale infrastructure, pipelines, power plants, oil distribution, gas stations, um, uh, all of those kind of distribution points and storage points for oil and gasoline. So that's a that's the kind of objective we want. What's required here is a lot of things to happen, um, uh, but that those are the campaigns that we hope to stick on uh, on on climate change and inequality um, in the next uh, couple years. So that's that's our agenda moving forward. Of course, NYCC works on other issues: housing, um, labor, immigration are all major issue areas for us. So I'm, I'm climate guy, so I can explain, you know, that. Um, but uh, but we also have other objectives as well. So that was a, a, a lot. I'm going to try to pull out just a couple of pieces. There are a few things I'd love for you to elaborate on. Um, first, I mean, obviously the elegance of this top-down approach, top-down in the sense that you started with the largest buildings, the biggest polluters, and you're working your way down the stack and now targeting, you know, single family and small multifamily dwellings. You know, obviously, as you've explained to me in the past, you know, that, that's legislation that can potentially then be model legislation for much of the rest of the country where the, you know, building types are generally, you know, freestanding homes, uh, you know, duplexes, this sort of thing. Um, but on the public power piece, uh, maybe could you just dig into that in a little more detail? Because a lot of the other pillars, I think, kind of make intuitive sense to people, right? We need more, you know, solar and wind energy, or we need higher taxes on really rich people to fund, you know, public goods. Um, the public power piece, I think, is a little more obscure because our electrical utilities uh, are kind of things that we take for granted for the most part, unless they stop working and then everybody panics, uh, like, you know, what happened during Sandy down, down where I live. Um, but maybe if you could connect that with the goal to have a phase out schedule in New York city and New York state, um, and, and just help people understand what those key, uh, you know, kind of points are in that conversation. Yeah. It's very hard. Um, you, you nailed it. I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the, the people, people get lost in narrow technical solutions. They can also get lost in sort of despair too, that none of this can be solved unless there's, you know, tens of thousands of people in the street, millions marching in New York City. You know what? I think the reality is, is that individuals can make a very big difference if they mobilize into smart, aggressive campaigns. And so um, at NYCC, we don't have like a specific ideological vision like of socialism or communism or some variation of that. We're really about mobilizing community power in low income and communities of, of color in order to build the force to achieve tangible objectives for our members, not incremental little objectives that don't really mean much, but transformational objectives like the Green New Deal. So um, so it's, it's very easy to get sort of lost in the despairing overall picture or really kind of go down a rabbit hole of like some very specific technical question. Um, I just heard the listeners, don't do that. You know, read up, learn. That's all great. 
what you really need to be doing here is banging away at elected officials and corporations um, and demanding stuff of them. And that's that's really it. That's really what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the elegance of, of the work that you and your you know aligned groups like, you know, uh, we act especially I know you've worked closely with. Um, it is this, you know, connection of the dots that like, you know, by building more efficient, uh, housing, you know, you reduce energy load, which makes it easier to decommission fossil fuel plants, which improves air quality at the same time that you're, you know, creating tons of good union jobs and supporting a just transition by doing a massive renewable energy build out. Right. So, um, you know, and I guess that is essentially the logic of a green new deal, but sometimes it just helps to see it laid out at a community level where the dots connect, um, you know, in, in your city or, you know, even just in a particular neighborhood. Um, I, I, I know. Yeah, I mean, you could think of it sort of as like Medicare for all, but for energy. Um, what we need is the public, democratically run and democratically controlled, to take control of large energy systems and run them for the public's benefit. Um, you know, the CEOs and the investors that are in charge of entities like Con Ed and National Grid, Con Ed CEO makes about $10 million a year. The company makes billions of dollars in profits and then delivers bad overpriced service that is too vulnerable to blackouts. Um, every time there's a blackout in the city, um, politicians like Andrew Cuomo get up and start hyperventilating about how they're going to hold hearings and they're going to hold the utilities accountable. And they never do it. Um, what they need to do is change the model, which is go from for profit private power into public power that can be turned on to suit the public's needs, not the private interests. And what that means is a large-scale buildup of renewable energy, a large-scale modernization of the grid, um, tying all of that to good union jobs to maximize career track employment in low-income and communities of color in a manner that can stand up a Green New Deal. Um, Con Ed and National Grid are not going to do that. Merchant power generation, not going to do it. And I'm saying that in, in, a, in a definitive way because of the record. New York State right now is at just 5% capacity of wind and solar on the electric grid. In downstate New York, just 2% of the grid is uh, renewable energy. The grid is dominated by fossil fuel power. And um, the in order to change that system fast enough requires a large public mobilization. Um, the last decade under Cuomo has been a decade of failure where um, coal power was replaced with gas power, with fracked gas. That's not a climate victory. Um, that's just treading water. Um, we're still just stuck at 5% wind and solar on the grid after a decade of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, I, I'd love to ask you a ton more questions. Maybe we'll have to have you back on, but uh, I don't want to take more of your time. Are, is there any uh, any last thing that uh, we should have touched on that we didn't, something I, I should have asked you and forgot to? Yeah, the, the, the big concentration of power generation in New York City is in Northwest Queens. Um, the most notorious power plant is Ravenswood, uh, called Big Alice. Um, Ravenswood is an enormous um, uh, fossil fuel 
power plant that is located directly across the street from the nation's largest uh, public housing project, the Queensbridge Houses. Um, so the air pollution generated in Queensbridge there from Ravenswood um, wafts right into the into the projects. Um, so it is, you know, the, the, the most stark symbol of the inequalities in America, this enormous climate and air polluter directly across the street from a low-income housing project. Um, there are other power plants there in Astoria that supply uh, much of the city's Power in the form of um, fracked gas use, which, you know, again, a huge climate polluter, big air polluter. So um, in addition to that, there are all these um, peaker plants uh, which turn on when the electric load goes to its highest, which is typically on the hottest summer days. Um, so those are additional power plants that turn on just on the hottest days when the air is already the worst, smoggiest air quality these plants turn on and start pumping out additional uh, air pollution into the communities. So um, a long range plan here, and this has to happen real fast, is a planned schedule for shutting down peaker and uh, baseload power plants, those power plants that run um, most of the time, shutting them all down systematically and in a planned and controlled way at the same time as renewable energy and energy efficiency are rapidly stood up uh, and come online to take its place. So those two things have to happen at the same time and it needs to happen real fast. So it's in that context where you start to think, well, how is a free market, quote unquote, where Con Ed and National Grid are controlling large parts of this process going to handle it? And the answer is not well. That's why we want um, the, the public to control that process directly um, and start to implement um, the very rapid transition that's needed. I'll say one more thing, which is that there are dozens of fossil fuel workers in each of these facilities, um, and they need a, a fair transition as well so that they don't just lose their jobs and that's it. Rather, there's support for wages and benefits as their jobs are eliminated because the, the polluting facilities need to be shut down. Those workers should be given uh, uh, money for training, courses, salaries, benefits to make sure that they're protected in that process. But the overall benefits of tens of thousands of new jobs in renewable energy and energy efficiency are so many orders of magnitude bigger um, in terms of job creation than any job losses that come from uh, closing down fossil fuel infrastructure. Nonetheless, it's important to take care of those workers. One last thing. Um, if people want to uh, get involved, volunteer, donate to NYCC, what do they do? Oh, they should just go to, the, to our website, nycommunities.org. Um, they can call me. Uh, my cell phone number is 917-648-7786. Just call me and I'm happy to chat about any of these issues. Um, you know, this is a very big challenge and we're trying to grow a real movement here. Um, so um, getting involved in our campaigns and um, donating is very, very helpful. We're not the only good organization. There are many others and people should join them and get active right now.
that's our show. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to Pete Sakura from New York Communities for Change. We do encourage you to go visit their website, volunteer, donate, and get involved. Dan Rook is the sound engineer. The theme music is by New York's own Archduke Redcat, and our logo was designed by the one and only Nilu Shruti. Thanks, and we'll see you next month.